Section 44 of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland, and the Search for the Poles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Abai in July 2019. The World's Story, Volume 8 norway sweden denmark iceland greenland and the search for the poles edited by eva march tappan section forty four the nobel prize by vance thompson the most familiar names of persons to whom nobel prizes have been awarded since nineteen o five are william marconi in physics madame curie in chemistry Rajat Kipling, Selma Lagerlöf, Maurice Metterlink, Gerhard Hauptmann, and Thomas Hardy in literature, and Theodore Roosevelt and Elihu Root for the promotion of international peace. The Editor As you go from San Remo toward Taja and the golf links, you pass the big white villa where Alfred Nobel died in December 1896. The greater part of his life had been spent in inventing explosives and perfecting methods of manifold death. His genius had made it possible to sink a fleet of battleships and obliterate half an army corps in one thoroughgoing moment. In his old age he thought of these things. Then, too, he felt under the influence of a very extraordinary woman, the Baroness von Suttner in books and public lectures she has long preached the sane doctrines of peace and it was her novel lay down your arms which inspired the tsar to summon the first peace congress at the hague try and convince me nobel wrote her once of the justice of your cause and i will furnish the means of action that is to say the funds in time the baroness von suttner succeeded and when Nobel died, he left his huge red fortune to the cause of peace and the advancement of science. It was in its way a grim philanthropic paradox. The income of his eight millions and more is divided into five equal parts and awarded yearly in prizes to those who have done most to benefit humanity. The five prizes are for discoveries in physics, chemistry and medicine, for distinguished work in imaginative literature, and, lastly, for advancing the cause of peace among the nations. The average value of a Nobel Prize is $40,000. It is worthwhile looking for a moment into the life of this strange old man. The race of money-getters is always interesting. Of English origin, he was born in Stockholm in 1833. His father constructed the first practical torpedoes and dabbled for years in explosives. Working together, father and son finally perfected nitroglycerin. The successful experiment was made in their factory in Helleneborg. It resulted in a terrible explosion which killed one of the sons and completely paralyzed the old father. Yet this very catastrophe was a successful demonstration of the value of the new explosive. It spelled out success and fortune. Success came, and the fortune, having blood at the root of it, grew into millions. Alfred Nobel went to Paris to secure financial backing for the invention. 
he told the French bankers that he had an oil that could blow up the globe. The bankers thought their interests lay in leaving the globe just about as it was, but Napoleon III, being less conservative, provided the necessary funds. A few years later, the new explosive, in German hands, blew him off his throne. The fluid nitroglycerin was ultimately developed into dynamite. When Alfred Nobel had carried his invention to the perfect end, he went to New York. His luggage consisted of a few trunks of dynamite. He used to say that not a hotel would take him in, and that the New Yorkers shunned him as though he had brought a pest in his pocket. So he went to San Francisco, where the first American plant for the manufacture of giant powder was established. Once before he had been in the United States. As a boy he had worked in the shops of John Erickson, to whom the world owes the modern battleship. His last achievement was the creation of Palestine, the first smokeless powder. Two inventions he left unfinished. One was the preparation of artificial silk, the other, and this was anxiously awaited in all the industrial world, was the production of artificial rubber. He was a grim old man. During his last illness he bought a sphygmograph and recorded the variations of his pulse. I don't know whether I have a heart in the figurative sense of the word, he said, but physiologically I have a heart, and it is a mighty bad one. There was a sentimental side to this old millionaire whose life was spent in collaborating with violent death. In his youth he loved a young girl, but she died or married someone else. All his days he mourned her, writing endless poems to her memory. In addition to these love verses he left a Swedish play, Nemesis. With all he had theories. One of them was welcomed by Mr. Andrew Carnegie. Experience has taught me, he said, that no happiness goes with inherited fortunes. They serve merely to deaden the faculties. A man should leave to his heirs enough to start them in life, and no more. Work is not only the law of life, but the source of happiness. A more questionable theory was that his explosives and formidable destroyers really made for peace, since they rendered war so deadly that humanity would be forced to declare against it. Ericsson, when he built the Monitor, said much the same thing. It was his dream so to perfect the art of war that men would not dare to break the peace. Of course it is possible that these two great inventors were right, but if you go to the bottom of their thought you will discover that it rests upon the assumption that at some fixed point human courage will fail, that the machine will beat the man. There is nothing in history to buttress up this contention, nor in one's knowledge of human nature. Men have never hesitated to go up against any kind of weapon. Bludgeons and poisoned arrows, or steel cartridges and cordite, it has never mattered much. I do not think the cause of peace will gain much by changing weapons. You will have to change the breed of men and you will have to find, what has never yet been found, the freezing point of human courage. It was not until five years after his death that the Nobel Institute was finally established in Stockholm and the first prizes awarded. This was in 1901. The bestowal of the Peace Prize had been entrusted to a committee elected by the Norwegian Parliament 
the most notable member of which was Björnstjerne Björnsson. According to the will, no one may apply directly for the prize. He must be proposed by a statesman, by a professor of law and political science, or by some member of the International Peace Commission. The first peace prize was divided between Jean-Henri Dunant of Geneva and Frédéric Passy of Paris, two white-haired apostles of peace. To Monsieur Dunant, more than to anyone else, is due the creation of the Red Cross Society. It was at the bloody battle of Solferino in 1851 that he first realized how little the doctors and nurses could do unless they were given the freedom of the battlefield. Within four years he had spread his ideas so far that he was able to convoke in Geneva an international congress, and at the second congress, in 1864, sixteen nations were officially represented. The cross of Geneva was adopted as the sign of this new neutrality, which covered the physicians, their aides, and their ambulances. In this work Dunant spent all his fortune. By the time the Red Cross was established all the world over, his last penny was gone. Then for years he wandered precariously over Europe, writing and teaching languages in Paris, London, Stuttgart, until in his old age Nobel's twenty thousand dollars lifted him from poverty. Now he lives at ease in a little Swiss town in the canton of Appenzell. He is seventy-four years of age and very feeble. Frederick Passy, who was honoured with him, has written and lectured for the last fifty years in France on economic questions. He is one of the few free traders in that old protected land. His first notable effort in the cause of peace was in 1867, when France and Prussia were at sword's point over the Luxembourg question. He founded the first French peace society, and so stirred up public opinion that no responsible statesman dared declare for war. His League of Peace failed to prevent the great Franco-Prussian War of 1870, but it has not been without influence in later days. Lastly, he was one of the creators of the Interparliamentary Union for International Arbitration, the peace propagandists love pompous phrases, which met first in 1889. Probably no one has done more than he to base the dreams of the peace-lovers on sound methods of international discussion and concession. The prize was again divided in 1902. Two Swiss peace propagandists were honoured. Elie Ducomin is secretary of the Permanent and International Bureau of Peace of Bern, which serves as a sort of clearing-house for the various peace associations in Europe and America. He is a journalist, and in prose and verse has preached the White Crusade. Dr. Charles Albert Gobard is director of the Central Bureau of the Interparliamentary Union at Bern. He holds the threads of all the legislative efforts for peace in the parliaments of the world. Before taking up the work, he gave himself to teaching and politics. None of these men was widely known outside his own little circle of Pacific friends. Nor had the world heard much of William Randall Kramer, the old English radical who was given the prize in 1903. In London he edits the Arbitrator, and was for a number of years a member of Parliament, sitting for one of the divisions of Shoreditch. 
with frederick passy he founded the society for interparliamentary efforts toward arbitration and has been for years the secretary he was brought most prominently to the front by his agitation in favor of a treaty of arbitration between england and the united states twice he visited washington presenting memorials signed by members of parliament to the president and to congress the prize of nineteen o four rewarded the anonymous piecework of the institute of international law of ghent in belgium and finally in september nineteen o five with strict justice the forty thousand dollars was given to the enthusiastic bohemian baroness who converted alfred nobel to the grandeur of peace madame bertha von suttner was thirty-seven years old when she wrote her first book in its way it was as epoch-making a novel as uncle tom's cabin since it appeared in eighteen eighty four lay down your arms has made more friends for peace than all the polysyllabic societies of europe the history of modern science might be written without going outside the names of the winners of the nobel prizes for beneficent discoveries in physics chemistry and medicine Röntgen was first with the rays that bear his name then lorenz of leyden and peter seemann of amsterdam for their researches into the effects of magnetism on the phenomena of radiation then becquerel and monsieur and madame curie there was a just order in this distribution of awards becquerel had worked for many years on phosphorescence and to him and his father was due the discovery of uranium which came after the Röntgen rays out of which proceeded radium a great deal of nonsense has been said and written about the famous discovery of madame curie and her husband the properties of radium are not yet wholly known of all substances it is the most costly if all that has been produced in the world were brought together it would lie on the point of a knife-blade nothing is so endowed with radioactivity without apparent diminution it continues to emit light heat and various other rays of course the most interesting question is as to the source of this continuous output the theory that madame curie holds today is that radium is an unstable chemical element which does decompose in giving out heat but with extreme slowness in fact she has recently found that where radium is present there is constantly being formed a little quantity of helium gas so in reality what one sees is the first example of the transformation of a chemical element neither lord rayleigh's discovery of argon nor the discoveries of professor lennart of kiel the later prize-winners has such an air of magic as madame curie's radium a pole by birth she came to paris long ago it was while studying in the schools that she met professor curie and married him he was a quiet dreamy man who came little before the public how much he had to do with the discovery of radium no one will ever know his recent untimely death left his wife to carry on the experiments alone the works for which the chemists were rewarded interest chiefly their fellow chemists van hoff's laws of chemical dynamics fischer's work on sugars that of arrhenius on electrolysis and that of sir william ramsay on the gaseous elements of the air lack dramatic interest 
of more human significance are the discoveries in the domain of medical science the first nobel prize was rightly awarded to professor von behring of marburg for his discoveries in serum therapeutics and its especial use in diphtheria he placed in the hands of physicians a mighty weapon for combating disease and death since he received the nobel prize in 1901 he has gone far toward perfecting a cure for tuberculosis a little while must elapse he said the other day before i can give it to the public in a practical way when the next tuberculosis congress is held in washington in 1908 i hope to demonstrate that at last the battle against human thysis is in the way of being won professor koch was the first to discover the tuberculosis bacillus it was for this the nobel prize of 1905 was awarded him but if the cure of consumption be indeed found it is thanks to the serum of von behring of almost equal benefit to humanity was ronald ross's discovery of the parasite of malaria of course he merely completed the labor of scores of illustrious men who had worked on the subject since the first jesuit missionaries found out the specific properties of quinine virchow pasteur and koch were his immediate forerunners what the young english scientist made clear was the precise manner in which the malarial infection reaches the human blood physicians had long recognized a vague connection between malarial fever and stagnant water it was assumed even that the disease was due to miasmata exhaled from marshes and poisonous soil this theory has been thrown to the dustbin of science since ronald ross proved that the responsible author of malaria is the wicked little spotted-winged mosquito the ross method was applied in havana by assistant surgeon general gorgas of the united states army in the first year of his mosquito work he practically blotted out yellow fever there were only five cases and the second year there were none it was nobel's wish that the literary prize should be awarded to the authors whose writings were of an idealistic tendency what he had in mind may be gathered from the fact that shelley was his favorite poet the honor first went to sully prudhomme who is one of the most delicate poets of the last generation sweet and grave and calm his poetry differs from almost all the hectic verse of modern days its quiet beauty was worthy the award the second year mommsen's roman history was chosen though its idealism is perhaps disputable in the succeeding years however the swedish committee showed a clearly defined policy to reward those writers who had done most to keep alive the fine feelings of race of country of patriotism doubtless from an idealistic viewpoint they are quite right but in honoring patriotism they are bringing into eminence one of the most indefatigable enemies of peace the preservation of race of national traditions is a stumbling block in the way of that internationalism of good feeling toward which the peace propagandists are jogging the patriot is always a fighting man bjornsson was given the prize in 1903 and he is not so much an author as a flag the symbol of that young norway which has finally got itself free of its gentler swedish sister and bjornsson with his rather narrow puritanism 
his intellectual energy, his vanity, like that of a child, is a fair type of young Norway. You remember his famous remark, There are two men of genius in Europe, I and Ibsen, admitting, that is, that Ibsen is a man of genius. Certainly no man of our day has left a broader mark upon the intellectual life of his own land, as author, orator, statesman, he has done more than any one man to make Norway what it is. The laureates of 1904 were Echigaray and Mistral. The great Spanish dramatist is known in the United States by one play only, I think, El Gran Galeato, which was produced at the end of the last century by one of the short-lived free theatres, but in Spain he is ranked with the masters of the drama, and especially that drama which is essentially Spanish. Oddly enough, he spent a good part of his life as a teacher of mathematics. He wrote on geometry, tunnel-building, and sewers. He was forty when he wrote his first play. Frédéric Mistral, who received the other half of the prize, is a strange old poet, whose fame has gone half around the world, though he writes in a dialect that is dying out even in his native Provence. Few Frenchmen can read Mireille, save in translation. Yet, for a little while at least, Mistral has saved his native land from the business-like equality that is sweeping away all that is picturesque in Europe. He lives, as he has always lived, in the village of Mayan, near Avignon. It was there, in the old square house, that I saw him shortly after he had received his twenty thousand dollars. A soldierly old man, with grey moustaches and an imperial, he sat in his huge study, the many windows open on the garden, and beyond the far line of the Alps, and talked of the Provencal Renaissance to which he has given his life. On one occasion the Emperor of Brazil, Dom Pedro, said to him, All the languages which are not of the first order, like English and German and French, are in danger of dying out, just as your native Provencal. So, in defending your own historic language, you are defending a crowd of little languages, the Finnish, the Portuguese, the Swedish, the Dutch, the Spanish, and the Norwegian, all of which are menaced by the great commercial languages. Doubtless that is why the Swedes were glad to recompense his work. The greater part of his prize-money has been expended in the restoration of the ancient palace of Arles, where he hopes to install a Provencal museum. Not without a little pride in the universality of American interests, I may state that Mistral's readers in the United States have already subscribed ten thousand dollars to help him in carrying out his work. President Roosevelt was one of the subscribers, and Mistral showed me a copy of Mireille, which he was about to send to the White House. Mistral will not, I fear, bring back the owl of old, but he is doing all that can be done to preserve for his countrymen the heritage of art, literature, and legend left by the mighty ancestors. In Sienkiewicz, too, the Swedish Academy honoured racial and national patriotism. It was not so much to the author of Kovadis that they gave the prize of 1905, as it was to the Polish patriot whose work has kept alive the Polish ideal. 
it is not very well known that Henrik Sienkiewicz is a practical worker in the cause of Polish freedom, and more than once has felt the snaffle of the law. The author of Kovadis passed through Berlin some months ago on his way to Stockholm to receive the $40,000 prize in person. He travelled in state, with a retinue of secretaries and translators, for it is a part of literary history that Kovadis in book and play has proved as profitable as the ownership of a mind on the rand. You have had a word with the various men honoured by the Nobel Institute, and what do you think now of the use to which the Red Fortune has been put? Wreaths have been laid upon the white heads of the stanchest old lovers of peace. Men already famous in the scientific world have been girdened with helpful money. Poets who have sung the old racial songs have been lifted into momentary notoriety. Writers who saw a duty in patriotism have been commended in a fine financial way. But is the great white cause to which Alfred Nobel left his millions any further advanced? In Europe alone there are sixteen millions of men under arms. The fighting tonnage of the seas is over four thousand millions. The annual military budgets of the great powers tower up into the billions of money. That is one side of the picture. And in the other you have a dozen amiable old Swedish gentlemen sitting in the library, or on the balcony, of the Nobelstiftelsen in the Norlandsgatan of Stockholm, dividing the two hundred thousand dollars a year among the five men of idealistic tendencies who have worked themselves into fame of some sort there seems to be an inequality between the two forces it is like fighting a city fire with a gilt-tipped bottle of rose-water end of section forty four